Hi, I'm Heather Mulder. And I'm Janice Greeno, and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas, practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a supportive path. Welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of our podcast. Today, our conversation will be with Katie Brandt, who is the Director of Caregiver Support Services and Public Relations with the Frontotemporal Disorders Unit at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's also the co-chair and caregiver representative of the National Alzheimer's Project Advisory Council on Research, Care, and services, and a family caregiver. Today, we're going to be discussing caring for the caregiver, um, encouraging promotion of resiliency, strength, and support. And Janice, I think this is a really common conversation. We are constantly encouraging our caregivers to care for themselves and connect with each other. But it really seems like the difficulty is in kind of closing the deal with them. They understand the importance of self-care, but it's really in that doing that it sort of gets lost with them. And I reflect on my time when I was a caregiver and it started out almost imperceptible, these little losses of self-care. As my partner's needs grew and became more consuming, the easily sacrificable activity was gonna be around my care. He needed me, and there was no question in my mind that I was going to do what it took to help him. It really kind of becomes hard to see the forest through the trees, if you will. You know, there's so many services and supports that are out there to help, but it can be daunting to reach out and find them when so much in your day-to-day life is starting to become overwhelming. Absolutely. And I think that this topic, caring for the caregiver, is so critical. Um, And I'm super excited about our interview today because, like you, she has experience. And I first heard Katie's story, and it was a virtual experience, and it was moving. And she has such a powerful story to share today. And it does make me think of the 16 million plus stories of caregivers across our nation alone who are impacted by Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. It is a national issue and she's part of the solution. And we are getting to collaborate with her today to make a difference and share this message. And I'm just so excited about it. I am too. I want to welcome Katie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Heather and Janice, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and honored. We always like to start these conversations by learning a little bit more about the individual who's joining us. So could you tell us a little bit about your story, about your journey, and and what led you to connect with the dementia community? Of course. And, you know, you mentioned my professional role with the Massachusetts General Hospital Frontal Temporal Disorders Unit. But the real thing that led me to this position is that for the past 12 years, I've been a family caregiver for my father, Tom, who's living with dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. 
In addition to this current role, I have former caregiver experience caring for my late husband, Mike, who lost his life to frontal temporal degeneration at the age of 33. Today, I'm an educator, advocate, researcher, and professional in the field of Alzheimer's and related dementias. My journey to this place was definitely unexpected, but today I live with grief and loss because people I love have been affected by dementia. That grief also fuels my passion for the professional career that I have, raising my voice for those who can't, supporting other families living life with dementia, and raising awareness, funds, and hope that the cure of tomorrow is not so far from the care of today. Wow, Katie, such a powerful story. And I feel like oftentimes we hear from our um, presenters and they're sharing these really impactful stories about how dementia has touched them personally. And it then fuels them to become advocates in this community or, or become involved in it in some other way. Now, I've had the opportunity to hear you present previously, and I just think you have some really powerful ways of phrasing things uh, that that really stuck with me. And and one of the quotes that you shared in one of your presentations was, it takes a village to raise a child and a community to care for someone with dementia. Can you explain that to us a little bit? Yes. It, you know, one of the things that I didn't know before I became a caregiver is that there's no one place that can meet all of your needs as a caregiver of a loved one with dementia. What I tell the caregivers that I work with now is that if you feel overwhelmed, that's because being a caregiver is overwhelming. And I'm trying to guide the caregivers that I work with in this model, uh, sort of this approach to connecting with the supports that they need. And I call it the caregiver trifecta. So I really think about three areas that all caregivers and families can benefit from connecting with. And those three areas, those three communities are their medical community, their disease community, and their home community. And the reason why we separate them in this very intentional way into three areas is because they can each provide something different. So your medical community is your treating physician. Who was it who provided your loved one with the diagnosis of dementia? Who is explaining to you what has caused their condition? Where are you getting your prescriptions, your treatment plan? That is critically important to be with an expert provider, a medical team. And then we know that all care doesn't happen in the clinic. You are going to go home and live your life. And that's where you need to be connected with your home community. Your home community is the place where you'll find the local adult day health program, where your loved one can maybe spend their day while you're at work. It will connect you with a local home health agency that can bring in that respite care. Maybe your loved one has nighttime wandering and you can't sleep. Well, you need a company that you can reach out to that can send a trained professional to your home to provide that care and support. And your disease community, 
you know, I say all the time, we might not have a cure today for Alzheimer's and related dementia, but we have a cure right now for the isolation and loneliness that may come with a dementia diagnosis. And being connected with the Alzheimer's Association, the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, uh, Cure PSP, the Lewy Body Dementia Association, that can help connect you with a community of other persons living with a diagnosis and caregivers and family members who are walking a journey similar to yours. You can get access to support groups and disease-specific information that can help make your journey a little bit easier. Katie, I just agree that the caregiver trifecta, uh, it can be so powerful. And I wonder if you would go back to that piece about the medical community just a little bit more and explain the importance of seeking that specific and accurate diagnosis and maybe what that looked like for you in your journey. Yeah, that was something that was really difficult for me, especially when we're thinking of my young husband who started showing symptoms of what turned out to be behavioral variant frontal temporal dementia at the age of 29. I brought Mike to eight different medical and mental health professionals before I was able to receive an accurate diagnosis for what was going on with him. And I think a lot about how I had privilege to be able to do that for my husband. I, at the time I had a, a great job with a very supportive supervisor where I was able to take time off work, to go to the many medical appointments without losing pay. I had health insurance that covered um, seeing specialists and multiple providers until we found out what was really going on. And getting that accurate diagnosis for Mike did two things for me. The first was Mike was unable to work due to his emerging symptoms. And that diagnosis of frontal temporal dementia is one of the 200 diagnoses that are on the compassionate care allowance list with the Social Security Administration. So that meant that when I applied for social security disability for my husband, he was fast-tracked for approval because there are certain diagnoses, including early onset Alzheimer's disease, primary progressive aphasia, supranuclear palsy, other dementias that are on that list. So if you're experiencing a young onset dementia, having that accurate diagnosis can get you connected with resources in your community faster. Many of us know that you're not eligible for Medicare under the age of 65 unless you're on social security disability. And there is a 24 month wait period for that. But starting that clock, getting approved earlier is so important. So the first thing that diagnosis did was it gave me access to more resources and support in my day-to-day -day life. But the other is that it connected us with opportunities for research related to FTD. And it let me know that my husband was receiving the right treatment for his condition. So because he did not have an amyloid-based Alzheimer's disease, the current treatments available 
for people living with Alzheimer's disease wouldn't have been the right fit for him. But if I hadn't have known that his condition was caused by FTD, then I wouldn't have known that those weren't the right treatments. So it really can be critical. When I think about my dad, he also had an unusual journey. He is living with Alzheimer's disease, but he's also living with normal pressure hydrocephalus. Uh, This is a condition that there were some articles in the news a few years ago about the dementia that can be cured. Well, my father benefited from a shunting procedure in his brain that relieved the fluid buildup that was causing his normal pressure hydrocephalus. It did not cure his dementia. He still has significant memory issues, but it did help to alleviate the incredible agitation that he was living with, the discomfort related to incontinence, and it helped him to live a higher quality of life and to have better relationships with the people that he loves. That was such an incredible treatment and gift for our family. And if we did not have an accurate diagnosis for him, we would not have known that that treatment was a possibility. So it really is critically important, I think, to understand what is the underlying cause of your loved one's dementia. Wow, Katie, I think you you make a really compelling argument for that accurate diagnosis, not only access to potential support or public programming, research, and then the appropriate treatment for the specific dementia that you may be dealing with, all are, are incredibly important. One of the big challenges that come with these diseases is just the uniqueness of them, the uniqueness in the presentation, the uniqueness in the progression, the uniqueness in each individual circumstances that will shape how they can care and how they can be cared for. And you often ask people to consider their goals of care and aligning those with your with their specific values. This is something that I do with families very early on, whether I'm working in clinic in the FTD unit, or as a facilitator of our Boston area FTD caregiver support group. And it really gets down to values, personhood, and dignity at every stage of the disease. So when I talk with families about what are your goals of care, I think a a good way to explain this is a conversation that I had with a husband caregiver who was talking about what was his goal of care for his wife. And he told me that he felt like he would not be fulfilling their marriage vows. He would not be a good husband unless he was the one there every day providing that hands-on care. And he wanted to make sure that he was going to be with her through every stage until the end. So when he shared that goal of care with me to be there every day, providing that hands-on care, I knew that I had to work with him to identify supports in his local community that could come into their home to provide services. That talking about a memory care assisted living or a skilled nursing facility would not be an appropriate conversation because it wouldn't match his goals of care. 
I want the families that I work with to know that they have choices that they can make that can honor their culture and their values. And that even though dementia is trying to steer the ship and make all the choices, that there are still things that we can choose in our journeys. Now, I have a, another couple that comes to mind, um, a very petite wife and a tall, robust husband. And so that wife was not able to do the physical care required at home, but it was her value that she be intimately involved in her husband's care planning and that she could be an advocate at every stage. So we worked to find a memory care assisted living facility in her local community that was able to integrate her into her husband's care team so that she was a central figure. And she was there every day checking in on her husband, either in person or by telephone. And that helped to meet her values and her goals of care about how she wanted to be connected with her husband through every stage of his journey. Katie, these are such valuable stories and thank you for sharing these and how they can look different and how those goals of care are so important. Sometimes when we talk about goals of care, we're so focused on the person living with dementia that we forget about our topic today. Caregivers forget to take care of themselves. Can you talk about the importance of self-care? The importance of self-care is critical. You know, you're, you're the first line of support for your loved one. So if you don't have gas in your tank, water in your cup, energy in your battery, you're not going to be able to be there for your loved one in the way that you need to be. So I talk with families about different ways that they can engage in self-care and get support that's focused on them. The first is I would say, get connected, whether it's through a support group at the Alzheimer's Association or going to Banner to attend an educational seminar about caregiving. Maybe you can't get out of the house, but you're able to find an online group through Facebook where you can hear the voices and stories of other caregivers so you know you're not alone. I encourage caregivers to integrate respite into their day, their week, and their month. So I made a rule for myself that I got to have a shower every single day. When I was an early caregiver, my son was an infant and then a toddler, and I had a stroller in the bathroom where I would strap him in <laughs> just so that I could take a shower for even if it was eight minutes by myself, and that was critical every day. I tell caregivers, make sure that you're setting aside time to eat every day. Make sure that you're figuring out how you can sleep every day. On a weekly basis, figure out how you can get respite coverage so you can go for a walk once a week or a drive. Do something for you that you like. Maybe you want to go to TJ Maxx and peruse the clearance, whatever works for you. And then on a monthly basis, think a little bit bigger. Reach out to your friends and family and say, hey, I'd like to plan a dinner or a lunch or a coffee once a month with you. People want to help and support you. They just might not know how. 
if you give them the opportunity, hey, could you stay with my loved one so I could go out and have a cup of coffee with my brother? People want to support and help you. And these are ways that by supporting yourself, you can improve the quality of care for your loved one. And lastly, let's not forget, being a caregiver can be a threat to your own health. Caregivers need to make it a priority to keep up with their own wellness appointments. Don't skip that dental cleaning, go get that mammogram and have your yearly appointment with your primary care physician to check in with your own health. I think all of those are great pieces of advice and, and helpful reminders too, though. Caregiving isn't often something that we've chosen to do. It's a role that we find ourselves in but sometimes it can help us recognize strengths that we didn't realize that we had. Something that has helped me uh, to talk with my son about the experience that we've had caring for his dad and his grandfather is we talk a lot about the superhero origin stories. So if you think about superheroes, they have origin stories that are linked to a place of trauma or struggle or challenge. Superman's home planet blows up. Uh, Spider-Man is bitten by a radioactive spider. Batman loses his parents to violent crime. And it's from that place of challenge that the superheroes are put in a new position, not one that they asked to be in, but one that they must face. And it's through that experience that they recognize things about themselves that they didn't even know existed. But as much as it's important to note that we have new skills and strengths that we didn't even know were there, it's also important to take the time to take off the cape. Think about Superman and his uh, secret identity of Clark Kent. That allowed him to take a break from his superhero status. It allowed him to feel normal, accepted, and our caregivers need that too. So sometimes it's important we go back to how can people help you? Think about the people who love you. Assign someone to be your cape bearer, to remind you when it's time to lay on the couch and watch, you know, binge The Bachelor or go out for that walk by yourself or maybe, you know, book a bed and breakfast and take that overnight respite. We all need people in our corner to remind us that we're awesome, but we also need to take breaks. That in itself is such a beautiful picture and a great analogy. It's something that I think people really can relate to. And I think one of your superhero strengths is how you've gotten involved in advocacy. And you had said the cure of tomorrow is not so far from the care of today. And you talked a little bit about research. Can you tell us about that and the impact that that made on you and your caregiving journey? Absolutely. So this goes back to the privilege of being connected with an academic research center it gave us opportunities to participate in research, which of course I want to contribute to the treatment and the cures of tomorrow. 
But also I had so many questions. How could my young husband have a progressive brain disease with no known treatment or cure? And FTD did so many things to change our lives. It, it took away our future and it changed the nature of our relationship. It felt to me like FTD was calling all the shots. But when Mike passed away, I made the decision to donate his brain for research. And to me, that was the moment that I shifted from being a caregiver to an advocate. It was the moment that I could take back some of the power that FTD had tried to take from my life. And for me, it was healing to give that precious, irreplaceable gift that no one else could give. Mike's brain was one unique brain. And to know that that could contribute to research in a way that no one else could, but also to get that report back and to go through it with Dr. Brad Dickerson, who is the director of the MGH FTD unit and was Mike's treating physician, so that he could explain to me what happened in Mike's brain. That answered a lot of questions for me. And I know that research is going to answer the questions. I heard another advocate say that the first people who are going to have access to the disease modifying treatments are gonna be those who are in research. And so that's why it's so important, I think, to raise our voices if we've participated in research. What was it like? What was easy about it? What was challenging? What are our questions? What are we afraid of? And how can we build on the relationships with the scientific community and the caregiver community so that there can be those connections for shared success. We need each other to get to the treatments and the cure of tomorrow. And, you know, it's so true when you're talking about these dementias are, are just taking so much. And this is a really powerful way to start to take back control and not let the disease call all the shots. And I know often caregivers are, are experiencing grief, whether they are current caregivers or their person has passed away. Grief is a, a powerful experience that they're having. And you say that advocacy is a great way to kind of combat that. For me, grief created a lot of energy. So when we think about goals of care and values, personality, you know, my personality is to be outgoing. My mom used to say that I think out loud and uh, process things out loud. And being able to share my story has allowed me to connect with others so that the energy created from my grief was not all negative. For me, it's those connections have been healing. They've created something positive. If you have the ability to be brave and share your story, your journey as a caregiver, those stories can powerfully impact elected officials and funders to think about what are the things that are going to be meaningful to you as treatments, services, and programs are developed. What would make a positive impact in your life? What would help to improve the quality of care for your loved one? 
what would allow you to protect your financial well-being while you were also living your best life as a caregiver and providing that connection and loving support that your family member needs during this difficult journey. So for me, it's been about sharing in small ways, like in support group, but also in big ways, like through my position as co-chair of the National Alzheimer's Project Act Advisory Council. And the more that I can share my story to make a difference, I think it really helps me to know that my husband's life was important. My dad's life is important. My experience as a caregiver is important. And it's something that I hope will help others. Your idea of living your best life as a caregiver is quite moving. And I think that you encourage caregivers everywhere to be brave. I do. I, I think a lot about when you first receive that diagnosis for your loved one. And what providers everywhere need to know is that when they diagnose someone with Alzheimer's disease or a related dementia, a related condition, they are giving a dual diagnosis. They're diagnosing a patient and a care partner. Many times family members and loved ones will start out as a care partner. And then as their loved one's condition progresses, they'll be a caregiver. And to embrace that title, that label, that role, it's admitting that your loved one has a condition where they need that care and support. That is scary. And if caregivers can be courageous to take that title, it can help them to step into the community where they can get the information, the access to resources, and the supports that will improve their journey and their loved one's quality of care. But I'm just continually impressed over and over at the family members, the adult children, the spouses, the siblings, the friends who show up and say, I'm a care partner, I'm a caregiver. That takes real bravery. Katie, before we wrap up, I think a lot of times we encourage caregivers to have resiliency or they're described as being incredibly resilient. And you really encourage resiliency through joy. I like to say to caregivers or families, you know, people with a diagnosis, everyone that I work with, just because dementia has come into your life does not mean that joy has to go out. You have the ability to make new memories of love and happiness, even with dementia in the background. It just may be that the caregiver, the partner may need to be the keeper of the memories. I had experiences with my husband and son where I watched them laugh and play together, hold hands. Uh, share guacamole and chips. These were moments when my husband was in moderate stage dementia and my son was a toddler. They were not able to remember those moments. I am the keeper of that beautiful memory. It's something that I've been able to share with my son today and remember for myself with pride, knowing that I helped to create that moment by being a caregiver who provided 
the environmental, the structural, and the behavioral supports to my husband so that he could make that connection with someone that he loves so much, our son. Katie, thank you so much for your discussion today. I wonder um, if you could give us your final thought when it comes to resiliency, strength, and support. My final thoughts is that you all are warriors out there. It's difficult. And try to, to take that first step. Join a community of support. I've spoken with caregivers who have talked about when they're not ready to show up at a support group and speak openly about what's going on with them, they might start by listening to a podcast or watching a webinar, joining a social media group. Take that first step and make that connection. And when you do, think about, do you have in place that caregiver trifecta in your life? Are you connected with a medical provider who understands your loved one's condition? Are you connected with the disease community that can help you feel less isolated and alone? And do you know the resources in your home community where you can feel that you can live your life every day and get the supports that you need? Keep going, don't give up. And when you feel tired and need support, reach out. Today, our conversation has been with Katie Brandt. Katie, we so appreciate you donning your cape, encouraging us to take back control and helping us untangle care for the caregiver. Katie, thank you so much for sharing your life story with us and for the advocacy you do on so many levels especially for serving on the National Alzheimer's Project Act um, Advisory Council and for representing and advocating for caregivers across the nation and for people living with dementia. Thank you so much. I just want to say, Heather and Janice, thank you so much for having me on today. And it's such a privilege to be able to share my story. And thank you for the work that you're doing to raise voices for those in our Alzheimer's and related dementia community. It's critically important and you're making a difference with this work. We appreciate you so much, Katie. Thank you again. And hey, thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Check out our website, banneralz.org for additional resources, education, and research opportunities. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno. Produced and edited by Amber Ayers and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation. Please visit our website at banneralz.org and follow us on Facebook to learn more about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.